Well, I'm so honored to get to be at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Dr. Patterson vastly overstated the difficulty it was to get me to come here. I'm very, very honored to be here. And uh, Dr. Patterson, I want you to know I do feel safe, but it's not for the reasons that you said. It's because I know that there are guns in Texas. So I feel very, <laughs> very safe. I'm not worried one bit about my safety. Hey, this morning we're going to uh, study a little bit from Acts chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn your Bible on, get your Bible out, get it on your phone, your tablet, or however you do it. Um, and while you're turning there, let me just make a few comments. I, I do want to bring greetings from South Florida and from the Scroggins family. My wife Kristen and my children would love to be here with me. And uh, they would love it. They've been to Texas before. They always enjoy coming here. They think it's amazing. It's not anything like uh, where we live in South Florida. Um, we, we do get a lot of questions when people hear that we have eight children. So uh, let me go ahead and go ahead and answer a few of those that you might have come to mind. Uh, how many of those are adopted? None. All of ours are homemade. Uh, people sometimes ask from time to time, do we have any twins? No, they all came one at a time. Uh, people ask, are you one of those uh, quiverful kind of people who uh, thinks that birth control is a sin? And I always tell people we don't think it's a sin. We just haven't figured out how to use it effectively. But we, we are grateful to have all of the children that we have. And uh, they are a joy most of the time. And, uh, but I do have five teenagers. I have five teenage boys that live at my house. That's a lot of testosterone flying around one house. And every once in a while I have to show them who the alpha dog still is. And uh, that always gets to be a lot of fun. And uh, those boys of mine, they love the Lord. They're good boys. We have, a, we have a wonderful relationship. But I'm telling you, those boys are bucking broncos, man. It's, it's a lot of work. Um, so those of you who have teenagers or hope to have teenagers one day, um, let me just tell you, it's not for wimps, okay? It is not for wimps. It is, it is uh, for prayer warriors. That's, that's who it's for. I also want to say that I'm very proud that my church used to be, which used to be called the First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach, now called Family Church. I am very proud that my church is a legacy church in the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm very proud that we are networking and partnering with Southern Baptists. And if you uh, are a younger pastor or you are thinking about becoming a pastor of a church, I want to encourage you that the greatest network, the greatest engine, the greatest movement you could be a part of is the movement of the Southern Baptist Convention around the world. There's no reason to be anywhere else. It's not perfect. And if you want to come up with some complaints and uh, have a complaining session, come see me because I have a whole bunch of them and I'll help you. But here's the deal. When I complain about the Southern Baptist Convention or its agencies or its leaders, it's kind of like when my brothers get together and we complain about our mom. All right, we, can, we love our mom, we honor our mom, and if anyone else complains about our mom, we're going to hit you right in the mouth. All right, but, but, but I want you to know this is our home, and I'm so thankful to get to be in one of the great institutions of the Southern Baptist Convention to stand here today. I do get to pastor a multicultural, multi-generational, multi-campus church. Our church, if you come to family church, it's about 50 or 60 percent English-speaking Anglo. It's about 25 or 30 percent Hispanic and another 20 percent mostly uh, Caribbean black. It's very diverse in terms of the way that we look. It's diverse in terms of the way that people speak. It's a diverse church. It's also diverse politically. We reach a lot of far from God people. And so these people, uh, our church is not all what I would call Fox News Republicans, okay? Our, our church has a lot of Obama voters. Our church has a lot of people with a lot of different, different 
uh, perspectives on what ought to be happening in the world politically. On They have different perspectives on immigration. They have different perspectives on income inequality. They have different perspectives on what to do about children. There's, there's a lot of different perspectives in my church, and it's really exciting. We also have a lot of socioeconomic diversity in our church. Our church uh, has millionaires and billionaires, some of whom you would know if I said their names, sitting next to people on public assistance and everybody in between. It's a really interesting, it's a fascinating um, collection, a melting pot of people. And our church is one big, fat, huge, hot mess, I'm going to tell you right now. I would love to tell you it's all buttoned up and the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, but it's just not that way. It is messy, 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 messy. I'm so glad to be at Southwestern Seminary where everything's all under control, Dr. Patterson. But, but our church is a mess, and it feels fragile. It feels fragile all the time. Uh, this year, a magazine said that our church was the ninth fasting, fastest growing church in America. I do not know if that is true. I don't even know how they found out. I didn't even know we were in the magazine until people started calling me and texting me saying, congratulations, you're one of the top ten fastest growing churches in America. I honestly had no idea. I don't know how they came up with that. But uh, Barna uh, Research Firm actually said um, that West Palm Beach is the number one—that West Palm Beach, the city of West Palm Beach, has the highest percentage of never-churched people of any city in America. The highest percentage of never-churched people of any city in America. And I have to be honest with you, we can be the fastest-growing church. We can have multi-campus. We can have diversity. I promise you, we are not making a significant dent in the lostness and the darkness in our community. But I believe that God wants to. I believe that the Spirit of God is doing it, that God is reconciling the world to Himself. And so I used to go to a lot of conferences and read books and study movements, um, trying to figure out how we can do this. And I love to hear stories about all the things that have happened in history and that are happening now around the world. But I'll be totally honest with you, Dr. Patterson, you may not like, I'll be totally, this stuff gets old after a while because it all starts to sound a lot the same. And. I just find myself again and again doing exactly what you're doing here at Southwestern Seminary, going back to the book of Acts, going back to the book of Acts and see where we all started and not speculate about what God might do, but let's read about what God has done, which shows us his character and shows us his desire and shows us who he is. And so I just love going to the book of Acts for instruction and inspiration. It just gets me fired up for ministry in the local church. It just does. So I want to read some of this uh, with you today, and I want to make some observations and share some thoughts with you that I have about this text. And I hope this will be encouraging to you, even though you're probably very, very familiar with this story. Acts chapter 4, this is what the Word of God says. And as they were speaking to the people, that's Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about how many? About how many? 5,000. On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they'd set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, 
of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Christ Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, let's just do a little review. I know you're all scholars. A lot of you are really up on this stuff, and you probably know this story better than I do, but let me just walk through it with you just for a moment so we can catch up and make sure we're on the same page. Okay, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus comes to His disciples right before He ascends to heaven. And Jesus says, you're going to be filled with the Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive what? You're going to receive you're going to receive power, and then you're going to be my witnesses uh, all over the world, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And he tells his disciples, you're going to go and reach people locally. You're going to reach them globally. You're going to tell them the story of the gospel. You're going to make disciples. You're going to baptize them. And he reminds them of the promises and the instructions that he had previously given them. We have some of that recorded in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15 about the Holy Spirit and the significance of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to come and give you power, Jesus says. And we know from the teachings of Jesus Himself and from what the Holy Spirit does in the Bible that the Holy Spirit's job is to come dwell in the hearts and in the lives of believers in Christ. And when the Holy Spirit comes into a believer, He begins to teach us and He begins to motivate us and remind us and lead us to do what Jesus would do Himself if He was physically here. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he teaches us, He reminds us, He prompts us, He empowers us to do what Jesus would do if He was physically here. And that's why Jesus said, once the Holy Spirit comes, you guys are going to do greater works than I can do because uh, Jesus in His earthly ministry was in one place at one time, but now you can make millions of disciples all over the world who can simultaneously be full of the power of the Holy Spirit and do the works of Jesus and speak the words of Jesus all the time, everywhere round the clock. And so, Acts chapter 2, we shouldn't read Acts chapter 2 as two separate from the end of the Gospels and from the resurrection of Jesus, because Acts chapter 2 occurs just, just weeks, I mean just, just weeks after Christ was crucified and raised from the dead. He was crucified 50 days prior to these events. And so, for the disciples in Acts chapter 2, the, the blood and the sadness and the brokenness and the disappointment and the fear is so fresh to them when you read Acts chapter. I mean, we read it like separate episodes because we study this at Christmas time, and then we read Acts chapter two at other times. But for these guys who are in it, this is all this is all one kind of set of events. It's all it's all very compact. And Jesus is there. They're, they're, the disciples are thinking about. Jesus and the instructions that He gave them. And then the Holy Spirit does come. The Holy Spirit comes, and they begin to do what Jesus would do if He was physically there. They stand up and they begin to preach the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and call people to repentance and faith and public identification with Jesus through baptism. And all of these people, 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2 become believers in Christ, and they, they get baptized, and they begin the First Baptist Church of the world, the First Baptist Church in 
in Jerusalem by baptizing them, believers' baptism by immersion, and they start this church, and they immediately start home groups, and they start doing what Christians do together, breaking bread and having the teaching of the apostles and praying and encouraging one another and sharing what they have. That's what the Holy Spirit does on the very first day that the Holy Spirit is given to believers. The very first day the Holy Spirit has believers teach and preach the gospel of Jesus. He prompts people, convicts them of their sin. They become believers. They get baptized, and they start a church. First day. So that gives us a template for what the Holy Spirit might want to do all the time, every day, until the Lord returns. This is, this is, this is a great set of instruction here about what we should be focused on and what God wants to do in our lives and in our churches and in our time. And what God does is the Holy Spirit uses the most unlikely people possible to preach the gospel, doesn't he? He uses the most unlikely people possible to preach the gospel. And you see that all the way through the book of Acts. These new believers, they become saved. They get baptized. They start new churches. And then you get into Acts chapter 3. And honestly, um, I was raised in church, so I've been to vacation Bible school and Sunday school, and I've seen flannel graphs and all kinds of things that we don't do anymore, thank God. And I, I... I always heard the story of Peter and John healing the lame man almost like it was a separate incident from this other stuff. But if you read the flow of the book of Acts, you've got the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus 40 days later, a 10-day prayer meeting followed by Pentecost. And this episode in the temple is like it's a day or two later. It's the same week. It's the same week they started the church with 3,000 people from scratch. This episode happens where Peter and John are walking into the temple, and a man, they have an everyday conversation. It's an everyday occurrence. It's not an unusual occurrence. It's an everyday thing. They walk in the temple. There's the guy who's always there. He's always been there. And he's like, hey, can you, got any, can you help a brother out? Can you, can you give me some money? We don't have money. They end, up, they end up healing him. And when Peter and John heal him in Acts chapter 3, this guy who's been lame from birth, he goes absolutely nuts, right? He just goes bananas. He starts running around, he's telling everybody, and all the people around start going nuts because they can't believe that the guy who's been there every day all this time asking for money is, is running around. And this is freaking everybody out. And so then the religious leaders come at the end of Acts chapter 3 and they begin to hassle Peter and John for what they did healing this guy in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's where we have the conversation that we just read from Acts chapter 4. So I want to give you just a few thoughts about what we can learn from this. I hope this will be encouraging to you. I hope this will be food for more thoughts. I hope this will be something that prompts you to think carefully and deeply and passionately about what God wants to do through you and your ministry and the churches where you serve. Okay, so first thought, number one, we have to get serious about reaching far from God people. We have to get serious about reaching far from God people. Let me tell you what happened in my life. Um, I've grown up in the Bible Belt. All right. Uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. That's just like Georgia. Okay, Jacksonville, Florida. Um, great mentor and friend to me. Great uh, friend to this seminary. Dr. Jerry Vines was my pastor. Um, I love Dr. Vines. Um, but that's the Bible Belt. I mean, it, it is the it is the 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 Bibleist, Baptistiest, Baptisty, Bibleist Bible Belt. That's where that's where I grew up. And then when I moved from Jacksonville, I went to Louisville, Kentucky, and Louisville is in the Bible Belt. And that's where I went to seminary, and I went to school there, and I taught there. Um, 
Then in 2008, I, uh, God called us to South Florida, so I moved to West Palm Beach. Now, West Palm Beach is a community, our county is about a million and a half people, but it's part of the greater Miami, South Florida metroplex, which has about 7 million people, because you have West Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale and Miami are all kind of right there together. I don't know if you know that or not. But when I moved down there, uh, I found myself kind of in a different world. Now, let me tell you just, just briefly what, what happened. This, this story is this the, my, my first month as a pastor at First Baptist West Palm Beach. Okay, when I was in Louisville, uh, my wife and I had a huge ministry with seminary couples and others doing all kinds of marriage mentoring and talking to them about raising young kids and people having babies. And so we had this huge, I mean, it was not unusual for us to just say, hey, we're going to have a parenting seminar or a marriage seminar, have four or five hundred people show up, a lot of them connected with Southern Seminary, and they just show up and they want to drink from the deep font of my wisdom of after, you know, after like eight years of marriage and two kids, I mean, I had a lot to teach. And so... <laughs> I, I've retracted it all now, but at the time I was very confident. And so we would have these people showing up. And so uh, when I moved to South Florida, our congregation had really been struggling. We were really struggling financially and attendance-wise and all kinds of ways. And our congregation, has, we had a really a kind of an older congregation. And I thought, we've got to connect with some younger people. Um, so I put in the church bulletin, my, I would, my wife and I would host a uh, preparation for marriage class. Uh, we would cap it at eight couples. Uh, we would sell uh, some books. They'd have to buy some books, uh, not written by us, but books um, to be a part of the class. So there's a cost. And I was surprised when the class filled up, like in 30 minutes, just filled up. First day we put it in, I thought, okay, that's great, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect with these young couples. And I'm going to talk to them about the impact of the gospel on communication and how we need to relate to one another. And I'm going to have them read some books by, you know, Paul Tripp and some others. I'm gonna, it's going to be really deep. It's going to be really amazing. Well, I show up for the class that night, and I look around the room. It's all people of all races in their 30s and 40s. None of them are Christians. None of them even go to our church, and all of them are living together, and none of them are married. And I realized, Scroggins is not in Kansas anymore. I'm going to have to do something different. And so I looked to my right, and I thought, well, let's just introduce ourselves. So I said, okay, how about you guys? And there was this young girl there. Um, she's Anglo, English-speaking, very visibly with child. She said, hey, my name's Katie. Uh, I have two children. Um, I, I have had two previous relationships. I've never been married before, but both of those relationships, he's produced a child. And now I'm here with my boyfriend, Jorge, and I'm expecting his baby, and we're thinking about getting married. And we were really interested in this class. All right, that's awesome. Jorge, what about you? Uh, Jorge says, uh, no inglés. And what I found out is that Jorge is an undocumented immigrant from Mexico, and he speaks absolutely no English. Katie speaks absolutely no Spanish. But they had been communicating, and so there they were <laughs> in this class. And I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm like, okay, well, that's great. Well, let's just go on to the next person. Um, and the next person, it was very fortunate that the lady sitting next to Jorge was this really beautiful, I mean, strikingly beautiful uh, Puerto Rican lady um, named Priscilla. And Priscilla is, has an MBA, and she is over about 30 different bank branches of a major bank in South Florida, really on the fast track. And she also visibly with child. She has a daughter from a previous marriage. She's there with her boyfriend. Uh, his name is Stanley. Stanley's Jamaican. He's an ex-NFL football player. He owns his own business there in South Florida. He also has a son from a previous relationship. And Stanley and Priscilla 
are there, and they live together. And so Priscilla uh, tells me that she's a Buddhist by background, so our mom raised her. She's never ever been inside of a Christian church for any event ever until this meeting right now. But fortunately and providentially she does speak Spanish. So she and Jorge can talk. So Jorge, the undocumented immigrant from Mexico, can talk to the Puerto Rican Buddhist about what we're talking about in the class. And Stanley from Jamaica, none of these guys. And I just started to realize, just take all my notes and chuck it, man. These people don't know a Bible story. They didn't bring a Bible. They don't know anything. They, they don't know anything. Don't care. And uh, I had to come up with a whole, different, a whole different template for trying to talk to these people about Christ. And I got airdropped into a place where honestly I don't have a choice. Our church doesn't have a choice but reach far from God people. Because it's all that there is. It's not that these people are anti-God or anti-Christian. They're not thinking God thoughts. They're not asking questions about God. They're just not. It's not, it's not on their radar screen. There's another young guy um, he's been coming to our church the last couple of months. His name's Eric. And Eric was educated at an Ivy League school. He has a law degree from an Ivy League institution. He's an attorney. He lives with his girlfriend. She's a pediatrician. So these are really beautiful, really uh, just articulate, sharp, young couple. Come to our church. Eric's uh, never been to church before, has no background in Christianity. And so he writes me uh, an email and he says, Pastor Jimmy, I've been coming to your church for a couple of months. I really enjoy it. I've noticed at Family Church, you guys make a big deal out of the Bible. Glad he figured that out. <laughs> you guys make a big deal out of the Bible. I thought I would get one since I've never owned the Bible or read the Bible. So I went to Barnes and Nobles and asked them to let me purchase a Bible. Quote from the email, it turns out there are a lot of options when it comes to buying a Bible. <laughs> He didn't know. This guy's an Ivy League. This guy's a sharp. This guy's a smart guy. And so I say, I say, Eric. So I was asking. I said, Eric, uh, like, what did you say when you went to Barnes and Nobles? He said, I went to Barnes and Nobles, and I said, I've been going to church. I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. I would like to purchase a copy of the Bible. And they said, Well, which Bible would you like? And he said, Straight, I would like the Bible, please. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't know. These people are far from God. Now, look, we at Family Church, we don't have it all figured out. We're always learning. But I can tell you right now, what we cannot do, what we cannot do is run our churches like a bunch of Pharisee schools where we're trying to outdo each other with our brand of legalistic righteousness. What we need to run is a beggar school where we are just beggars helping other beggars find where we found the bread, and the bread of life is Jesus. And uh, the reason that churches are so competitive, you guys ever noticed even as seminary students that churches are competitive with one another? They don't like to admit it, but they are. You know why we're all competitive? Because most of the churches in Southern Baptist life and most evangelical churches are all fighting over the same upper 20% of income earners in a given area, leaving out the other 80%. And so it is competitive. You can't, you can't cross the street with it. You can't go to Starbucks without five church planners bumping into each other in there in affluent areas. But we got 80% of the population with nobody caring about them, nobody reaching them. What about the trailer parks down the road? What about the apartments in the difficult neighborhoods? What about down in the hood? It's not competitive going after those people. And it's a huge plant challenge in our church planting strategy because the way that we mostly do it, and I've done this and I continue to do it. I'm not saying this is a bad strategy. This shouldn't be our only strategy. Our, our primary strategy is for a young, budding, potential superstar to raise a half a million dollars to sustain him through three or four years. 
And then at the end of three or four years, his support runs out, and he has to be what we call self-sustaining or self-supporting. Which means that during his three or four years, he really can't worry about reaching a bunch of lost people. What he really needs to do is attract givers. So he really can't afford to reach large numbers of people who don't have money. Not because he doesn't want to. Not because he doesn't have a heart for it. He can't afford to reach them. He has to attract givers in order to stay in business once his support runs out. I'm just saying what I know. Well, if we are convinced that the only way to plant churches is to find what we call self-supporting churches that allow multiple staff to live at middle-class lifestyles without having to work another job, then we are all going to just continue to fight over the upper 10 or 20 percent of income earners, earners till Jesus comes and let the rest of them go to hell. I don't think that's the mission of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't have all the answers. And I do believe we need churches to reach millions of middle-class and upper-class people. And I'm thankful that my church pays me a salary so that I can devote myself full-time to the work at the church, and I don't have to work another job, although I'd be willing to if God calls me to do that or if I need to do that. But I'm going to tell you right now, we better develop some additional models to church planning if we want to reach the world for Christ, if we want to reach our nation for Christ. It's going to involve some people being bivocational, finding another way to earn their primary living for them and their families while they pastor a church. It's also going to require some different models of church where you can't put 80-hour demands of pastoring on a guy who has to work 60 hours to make his living and can only give 10 to 15 hours pastoring the church. We're going to have to come up with teams. We're going to have to come up with some different models. We're going to have to do some research and development. We're going to have to get innovative. We're going to have to get creative. We can't just sit here, keep doing what we're doing. It's not going to work. We're not going to get it done fast enough. That's not what's happening in the book of Acts. You know what happened in the book of Acts? Man, those guys weren't worrying about any of the stuff that we worry about. Those guys in the book of Acts, think about this. 3,000 people, day one Pentecost. Next couple of days, they have this deal where they heal the lame guy, and then they get to preach to some more people. 5,000 more people get saved, okay? These guys have started a church with 3,000 members and 5,000 new believers to disciple in less than a week from scratch. And they did not have a haze machine. They did not have a, a band. They did not have a drum set. They did not have a pair of skinny jeans. They didn't have a half a million dollar war, war, war chest. Now, I'm for using all of that stuff to the glory of God, but somehow, somehow, the Holy Spirit let them reach 8,000 people in one, in one week with none of it. And these guys were bivocational guys, no seminary education, no nothing. And they reached 8,000 far from God people in one week. How did it happen? How did they do it? You know, I'm glad you asked because that's exactly what the Jewish leaders asked. And if you read on Acts chapter 4, let's pick it up just for, just, I know we got to go. Uh, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized they'd been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right 
in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. You must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So, so what was it that let common uneducated nobodies win over 5,000 people to Christ in one day on the steps of the temple while they were healing and preaching? Okay, so the first thought was we've got to get serious about reaching far from God. People, second thought, we have to get serious about prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to get serious about prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, these were very ordinary guys. They were uneducated and they were common, but these were guys who just come out of a 10-day prayer meeting. When's the last time any of us have gone through a 10-day prayer meeting? 10-day prayer meeting, yeah, they were ordinary, yeah, they were uneducated, but it's kind of unusual for somebody to be in a 10-day prayer meeting and then come out of there and start preaching and see what happens. Acts chapter 1 and 2 tells us that. And then they start this new church, and prayer is one of the centerpieces of what happens in their home groups. And then they had power because time after time the apostles in the church all through the book of Acts see miracles done through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I am not a theological cessationist. Don't write me emails. I know. I read the four views. I got it. I don't, I don't want to argue with you about it. I'm not a theological cessationist, but I'm more kind of like a functional cessationist. Because the more, But the more I look at our world and the more I read the Word of God, honestly, the more open and hopeful I am to seeing God do in our day what He did in the book of Acts. Paul and John, Peter and John told the authorities that they would not, they could not stop talking about what they had seen and what they had heard. And they said, you authorities can do your worst. And these were the same authorities that just a few weeks before had absolutely crucified their Lord, crucified Him. So these guys had the power and the authority to potentially crucify them. And they said, you do what you want. You put us in jail, you beat us up if you want, crucify us if you want. We will not stop talking about what we have seen and heard. We'll pay the price. We'll do it because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was empowering them. They wouldn't stop. They had heard the truth from the mouth of Jesus. The words of Jesus were still ringing in their ears. You will be my witnesses. Go and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. The Holy Spirit's with you. You're not alone. The world's going to hate you. But don't worry because I'm with you. They heard the words of Jesus. They saw the tongues of fire resting over one another's head. They had seen the Holy Spirit hurricane. They experienced it. And they'd seen the, the blood, and they heard the pounding of the nails, and they watched the thrusting of the spear, and they saw the bloody, thorny crown. And then they got to put their hand in the nail-scarred hand after they'd seen and heard about the empty tomb. Plus, they had a lot of confidence because they just started a church last week that was already running 3,000, and they just came out of a 5,000 uh, salvation uh, evangelistic meeting. And you know what our problem is? We've all heard too much, and we haven't seen enough. That, that's our problem. I mean, you, you want to know the truth. I don't care how great your pastor is. I don't care how good of a teacher you are or you think you're going to be. People aren't coming to your church because of the preaching content. They're just not. You know, you know why I say that? I don't mean that preaching is not important. It's very important, but they're not. The reason I say that is the people in your church can hear any preacher they want, all they want, from anywhere in the world for free on their own schedule. And I promise you, however good you think you are, there's somebody that's a little bit better. They're more interesting. They're more compelling. They're more up to date. They're deeper. 
they're, they're more scholarly. There are somebody that can outdo you in whatever you think you're good at somewhere, and they're on the internet for free all day around the clock. So people aren't coming because you deliver this unbelievable content. People come because they want to experience the people of God. They want to experience the Spirit of God. They want to hear from their pastor who loves them and who knows them and who is shepherding and caring for their soul. They, they, they don't come because you can out-preach the other preachers. They come because you are the under-shepherd that God has assigned to them. They come because they, they want to be with God's people. They want to experience God's power. They, they can hear the preacher anytime they want. They, they've, they've heard a lot. They've heard so much. You've heard so much. I'm tired of hearing all that stuff. Man, I want to see it. I want to feel it. I want to be there when it happens. God, let us see you. God, let us see something that will stop traffic in our neighborhoods and in our communities. God, let the authorities come after us. Let us at least do something that gets the attention of the authorities so they have to scratch their heads and say, how? Let us be so full, bold and full of the Spirit and so laser focused on the gospel that we will see something, that we'll feel something, we'll be a part of something. And real quickly, two more ideas. Number three, we've got to get serious about more gospel conversations. Serious about gospel conversations. I mean, this all happened because Peter and John, full of the Holy Spirit, took an everyday conversation and they transformed that everyday conversation into a gospel conversation. They pivoted right off. Hey, do you have some money too? Hey, I don't have that, but let me tell you what I have. They had a way and they got right into the gospel and they got on it and they didn't waste time. And they were very serious about turning everyday conversations into gospel conversations. And that's what we need to do. And the only way that we're going to get the gospel to millions of people in America and billions of people around the world. Check it out. This is when it's going to happen. It's not going to happen because we get on the internet more effectively, although that's fine. It's not going to happen because we all uh, get um, so good at our sermons and we put together these amazing talks and so relevant and our graphics and blah, blah, blah. That's all good. Well, let's do the best we can at all of it. The only way that we reach this nation and the nations beyond is if we have millions, check it out, millions of Southern Baptists having tens of millions of gospel conversations every day. That's how we do it. Not, 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 not lasso 10 or 15 of your most hardcore soul winners from the 1970s and tell them to, to, to white knuckle it a little bit harder and drag a few more people in. Millions of Southern Baptists having tens of millions, hundreds of millions of gospel conversations every day. We do that, we can reach billions around the world. That, that's what's got to happen. That's what happens in the text. That's what the Holy Spirit uses. That's how the Holy Spirit moves the gospel forward. Now, I'm a pastor, I'm a church member, and I'm overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the lostness in my community. Most of those people in South Florida don't know Jesus, but I'm not going to get into a spitting contest with you about who lives in the most lost place. Because trust me, wherever you live, there's plenty of them there. Plenty of them there for the rest of your life. Okay, I don't care where it is. You want to move to Nashville, they've got them there. You want to move to Austin, they've got them there. You want to move to Houston, they've got them there. I think we might have some in Dallas, I'm not sure. So I think y'all have some people who speak Spanish here as well. I, I don't know. But there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people everywhere you go. We just got to have more gospel conversations. That's how we get to multiplication. Look, all we're going to do, if we just harass our few hardcore soul winners a little bit and drive them a little bit harder, we just do faster addition. But if we could engage millions, then we can have tens of millions of conversations, and that's how we can do it. And I don't care how you do it. 
find a way to do it. Get people engaged. Last, last little thought. We've got to get serious about more gospel congregations. More gospel conversations, more gospel congregations. I love that those things are imprinted on the pillars of this building. Church planting, more of them. Look, when someone repents and believes the gospel, God's doing it, the Holy Spirit's doing it. And every time someone repents and believes the gospel, it's just more evidence that God is keeping the promise that He made to Himself, that He's going to reconcile the world to Himself. That is a promise He has made to Himself. He's doing it for Himself, and He doesn't do it by Himself because He calls us to do it as His Holy Spirit-empowered ambassadors, and it's almost as if God was making His appeal through us, so says St. Paul. God won't make His appeal without us. He makes His appeal through us. And that's why in the book of Acts it's the Joes and not the pros that get the gospel out. It's the, it's the Joes that plant the significant churches. The churches at Antioch and Alexandria and Rome were all planted by people who were not apostles. In fact, the apostles are always surprised when they get there, and oh my gosh, who started that church? Who told you you could start that church? And then they have to start, you know, trying to put the rules on them. All right, so, so the Joes are the one, these Holy Spirit-powered, regular people who were far from God at one time. Someone had a gospel conversation with them. They became believers, got baptized, joined church, and now they're planting churches, more conversations, more congregations. And the best way to build a congregation is to teach your believers to have more gospel conversations. And if they do have more gospel conversations, you will have more believers, so you'll need more gospel congregations. And that's how this works all through the book of Acts. Now, let me just wrap this up by saying this. Uh, remember that first meeting I had with those people, and they were all, and was, uh, Katie and Jorge, they both became believers. They became believers in Jesus. We baptized them. We married them. And it was really complicated. It's a good thing I have my Cuban uh, children's pastor, because he could do the, the marriage vows in Spanish, and I did them in English, and it was really exciting. I've never done that before. I uh, have done it since, but not before. And uh, they got saved. They got married. And, uh, and Jorge came to me, and he said, hey, listen, man, I'm an undocumented immigrant. After he learned how to speak English a little better, I'm an undocumented immigrant. Um, what should I do? Because I'm a Christian now, and I, I don't want to break the law. And I can't go back to Mexico because Katie's, the father of Katie's other children won't let those kids go with us to Mexico. And if I leave and go to Mexico myself and she doesn't go, then she doesn't have anyone here to take care of her and her child. So what do I do? That's when it gets real, doesn't it? So what do I do? So what did I tell them? All right, I don't need any emails. I had to tell them something and I just said, I think they're going to change the rules. Keep your head down until they do. So <laughs> I, I, we're just trying to... T- trying to disciple people where they are. Stanley and Priscilla got saved. Priscilla came over to my house and she said, look, I'm broken, Pastor. I'm broken by my sins. I need to become a Christian. She became a believer. We baptized Stanley and Priscilla. I did a wedding in their backyard. And uh, I will tell you, if you've never done a combination Jamaican, uh, uh, Puerto Rican uh, wedding with a bunch of far from God people, it was not very Baptisty, but it was very wonderful, and they did become believers, and they're baptized, and they're working through it. So not everything's not perfect, but they're going at it. And um, I'm still praying for Eric. I'm going to see what happens with him, have some more conversation with him in the future. I believe he's really close to trusting Christ like so, other, so many others. And I'll tell you, I'm just like you. I don't want to just hear and read about the great works of the Holy Spirit. I want to see it. 
I want to feel it. And I want all of us to join hands and lock arms, put our shoulder to the wheel together, put our shoulder to the plow together. And each one of us just do our part. We can't all do that. We shouldn't have a Messiah complex. We can't do the whole thing. But let's each do our part. Let's call upon the Lord. Let's ask Him to do what He said He would do. Keep His promise that He made to Himself. And use us as His ambassadors as if He was making His appeal through us. Let me pray with you. God in heaven, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the truth of the Bible. God, compel us, urge us, motivate us, pick us up, propel us forward. Let us be gospel people. Let us be sold out to reaching far from God people. Let us be sold out to more congregations, more conversations. But most of all, let us have your anointing, your hand, the power of the Spirit on us to do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.